Hello everybody, it's Kit Kennedy here and I'm back with another episode only three days late. Could it be that by October I'm finally finding a rhythm? I'd let myself feel a bit ashamed of that, but I'm learning that self-compassion is paramount when you're doing things like recovering from toxic religion, living through a pandemic, redesigning your life post-church or you know any other thing. And you know what? I'm running a business, raising two incredible kids and growing a tribe of deeply appreciated, beautiful friends and chosen family. Now, why am I taking this moment to have a bit of a humble brag? Because I hope if you're recovering from your own ride through trauma, if you're living through this pandemic too, you give yourself a bit of permission to go slowly, count the small victories and realize that you're actually doing something big. It's huge. And healing takes energy of which you only have so much. So do we have to go a little slower during this pandemic? Yeah, we do. Um, anyway, today's episode was positively medicinal for me. It's all well and good to talk about deconstruction, ethic, life and philosophy post-Christianity um, in a sort of secular sense and kind of deconstruct it without use of the Bible, which a lot of us find quite triggering. But not all of us deconstruct into a place where we fully reject our former faith. I guess I call myself post-Christian because the word Christian alone is so very laden with meanings I just don't like. I just can't go there with church for now, perhaps forever, but Jesus, radical inclusivity, love, rejection of corruption, of the toxicity of religious systems in favour of elevating people, that I'm still okay with, that I still love. you know, I think figuring out what it means to balance post-Christian life is interesting. And personally, I'm well past embracing biblical literalism in any way. <laughs> but I still have a great deal of reverence for the sacred texts, and they still play a big part in my history. So <laughs> sometimes it's nice to actually take a fresh look at the Bible to have somebody different speak into this place that has perhaps become quite triggering and quite negative in its association for a lot of us. So, what does the Bible really say about sexuality, sensuality, womanhood and more? Turns out there's been an incredible woman doing some incredible work on it from inside the church. And look, I'm sure there's more than one of them. I know there's more than one of them. But today I'm speaking with Reverend Dr. Beverly Dale and our chat takes us into the less talked about parts of the Bible that allow us to embrace the flesh, not put it to death like so many of us have erroneously been taught. It's a great episode, if I say so myself. So whether you sit inside the church, outside of it, or are pondering your path in between, I think this has got something for everyone. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm Kit Kennedy, and this is Unchurchable. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unchurchable. I'm Kit Kennedy and I'm delighted to be here with the one and only Reverend Dr. Beverly Dale or Rev Bev as she's uh, as she's known. Now I was absolutely thrilled when um, an email from Bev's team popped into my inbox to say that she wanted to talk about a new book that she's got out because your body of work is incredible. Like um, a lot of a lot of resources up there on your website. We're, we're talking books, we're talking speaking engagements, all sorts of things. Um, usually, when 
ministers study one of the other thing you know they say not to talk about sex religion or politics over a dinner table um I'm used to ministers if they're going to dip into something else other than religion it's usually politics but you've gone the other way um (laughs) tell me a bit about yourself and how you got into this space (laughs) well uh I guess I've always thought that a church that teaches uh, God in the flesh really should have some good things to say about the flesh. And for about 2000 years, most of Christendom has not had anything good to say about the flesh (laughs) uh, or women for that matter, or sexual diversity for that matter. So anything about the flesh is a bit problematic for the traditional Christian Mm -hmm. church. There have always been theologians and, and churches and congregations that are, that are cool with the flesh, but not really tied it into the Jesus story. And so that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, that's a, that's a big cause to take on because, um, and look, I'm speaking solely, I think, from my experience and my tribe that kind of left evangelicalism and are trying to kind of grapple with what spirituality or faith looks like for them beyond that. And I have to say, I still feel a little bit uh, sacrilegious when I speak about sex and sex positivity. Um, I'm not like even kind of five years into my deconstruction, um, I'm not that comfortable saying, yes, I believe in Jesus and yes, I'm sex positive and yes, I know what that means for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a minefield. Um, and, of course, you're the founder of the Institute for uh I think I'm getting this right, sex and faith, which I love those two things going together. Um, So how, yeah, how do you start laying the groundwork and how do you start building this narrative up when it's, when so many people in churches are completely illiterate about it? Mm -hmm. So um, you asked me earlier about my own story, and I think that's where I'll kind of start with this so you can see where I'm coming from. Um, So my, my sexual history is pretty bad. You know, it's a lot of sexual ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, and a child molestation was in a piece of that date rape was a piece of that. Um, mm-hmm. and the church didn't say anything good about being mm-hmm. a sexual woman, mm-hmm. except I like Jesus. I mean, he, he was, he was great. He was the adult in my life when I didn't have adults in my life, really watching yeah. me and taking care of me. So, um, I had an allegiance to Jesus. I wasn't sure I had an allegiance to the church, but I did feel called to the ministry. Yeah. And so I had to work this stuff out. I had to work out this intersection between body and spirit, sexuality and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I realized that I could do that and I have a way of doing it. And I could tell you a little bit about it because I'm writing about it right now. Yeah. Um, but, but I didn't, I felt like the church had taken away my Jesus with all of this atonement, sacrificial stuff. Mm. It actually came out of St. Anselm and um, I feel like the 11th century or something like that. So come on. Uh, And it's not particularly relevant to unless you're into buying fire insurance, which is kind of what the church has been selling for a couple thousand years. Um, So so what I did was after I went through a lot of therapy, spiritual direction, Bible study, reflection, Mm -hmm. went to seminary and realized that, you know what, there's a whole side of Christianity that feminists, womanists have been post-colonialists have been writing about. Mm -hmm. Um, I can stay on the inside of the church and subvert it uh, to remind Christians in the church who we were supposed to be um, in the eyes of Jesus. And so 
my work is I simply turn around from my life journey to see those coming along behind me to say, oh, yeah, the church is still doing it, keeping them sexually ignorant, keeping yeah. the women in their place, uh, poo-pooing sexual diversity of all kinds. Yeah. And say, no, you don't have to do that. In fact, the Christianity that, that I teach is not new. It's not woo-woo. Yeah. It's not new age. I'm going back to Jesus. Yeah. And um, so when you could have issues with the Jesus thing coming up for you, you need to say, <laughs> where's your party going, Jesus? You know, that was yeah. the criticism that he was having too much fun with the wrong kind of people. <laughs> you know, this is according to Matthew, mm-hmm. feasting, you know, um, telling stories about the banquet. So, you know, he went to a lot of banquets and feasts. That's true. Um, and, That's true. And John 10, 10, promised to give you life in all of its abundance. That's what I've come for, life in all of its abundance. And you can't have an abundant life if you're busy shutting down uh, the sexual, if you're busy tamping down diversity, yeah. Um, and if you and if you're tamping down the feminine spirit, whether that's uh, females or whether it's female identified people or if it's you know the feminine in the masculine, you yeah. know it's all in there, and the church has tried to keep those bifurcated. So. Um, there's a lot in what you just said. And obviously uh, yeah. this is kind of years of study kind of <laughs> packed into a paragraph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that was a lot. All right. So slow me down, so slow me down. We're just going to take the next hour to meander through that paragraph. Sure. <laughs> I am fascinated by the, look, I'll, I'll be upfront and say I just watched a, documentary last night or a, a news segment on the Hillsong Church. Um, it ran um, on a program called 60 Minutes. I think you've got an American equivalent. Mm-hmm. So 60 Minutes in Australia ran a program last night on Hillsong. Um, and in it, somebody that I know actually spoke up about having been raped in church. Um, she'd stayed back to uh, pack up some chairs and another attendee um yeah took advantage of that and um and the church actually allegedly covered it up and I say allegedly because it's a legal term I 100% um believe and and um and support this victim and there was another victim that spoke out on the program um but really I I look at these situations all across Christendom it seems that there's a day of reckoning for a lot of abuse and a lot of sexual abuse but it seems to yes. it seems to me that this is really capitalized on sexual ignorance um of, of yeah. especially young women in that way and I I spoke to um last week's interview which which I'm yet to send live well obviously by the time you're listening to this it's live the interview with Meg Cowan um was talking about recovering from purity culture but really purity culture was kind of the last 20 years or even 50 years if you want to stretch it out um of you know kind of active shaming of sexual activity in the church but you're talking about um cultural and culture and doctrine that goes right back to you know was it the 1100s <laughs> that you uh-huh, said uh-huh. Yeah, yeah and in america obviously we're seeing abstinence only sex education so sexual ignorance is something that becomes a statewide thing so where do you even start in church having these conversations around faith and sexuality and all faith and sex 
Okay, so um, I, it is sexual ignorance, and I also want to tie with that the, the intentional disempowerment of women. Oh, yeah. That's a piece of that, too. So if you, if you don't give people permission or women permission to know their body and to say yes and to say no, mm-hmm. then we're in trouble. So, so ignorance goes with that. Um, and the other piece of it is um, if people are busy, if the church is tamping down sexuality, yeah. then you either attract leadership who have got huge sexual conflict and they're hoping to find a path that's going to keep them pure and, yeah. and won't be tempted. So you attract those people or it's just sexual oppression has to come out and it will come out yeah. in inappropriate ways. Yeah. Um, so in the situation of these mega churches with lots of money, mm-hmm. um, you know, that gives them lots more power Yeah. higher on the pedestal. Yeah. Um, which allows them to get by with more stuff. So, um, so where do we start is, well, first of all, we say you have to support comprehensive sex education. And in this country, that's a mess. I mean, it's just not (laughs) happening hardly at all. So um, I've seen documentaries where uh, they ask teenagers in Netherlands or Scandinavian countries, you know, do you have a condom on you? Well, sure. And then whip it out. And yes, in my purse and my, in the U.S., it, it, the teenagers, oh, oh, no, no, I would want people yeah. to think I want sex or have yeah. sex. So you can imagine what happens in this country then. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully unprepared. So how we begin um, is to ask two questions. Um, the first question is, who is your God? Yeah. And the second is, who is your Jesus? Now uh, you start with that. So right. the, what, what holds all of this sex negativity together is fear and judgment. What's going to come from the great grand male father God, grand yeah. Puba, who's going to zap you in the hell. Right? Yeah. So who is your God? You got to find a God who's okay with laughter, who's okay with sensuality, who's okay with sexuality mm-hmm. um, and the erotic. Yeah, I mean that, and you can find that. You can find that in in the Genesis story, right? Um, okay, so right there, you've got a dichotomy, um, and and I I always laugh. I, I I do a bit of stand-up comedy, and and one of you know my my bits that I do is about how you know the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, um, about God being or oh, about Jesus being His own Father and also a disembodied spirit, and I also do this this bit about how um, how do I know that God is not male? How do I know that God's a chick as well? Is, you know, he made the clitoris so obvious that you don't need a map and yet so many men miss it and, or she made it. And then she realised that they weren't going to ask for directions, so she put the male G-spot up their bum and only made 3% of the population brave enough to go there. <laughs> so Love it. Yeah. I, know, yeah. I know that's fairly risque. <laughs> it's because I'm pro-women and I'm pro-diversity. Yeah, and um, I hope pro-pleasure. Come on. Well, yes, yes, pleasure is good. That's yeah, good. And that gets... What? If I'm honest, 
I'm learning to be pro-pleasure. I'm pro-gay because my best friend is my ex-husband who was a survivor of gay conversion therapy. Um, And, you know, like there's like there's all of this kind of stuff to unpack. But the dichotomy that you're speaking about there is you're acknowledging that God and Jesus are not the same. Right. I am not. Not in our minds. They're not. The God figure is what's holding all of this repression together. So that has to be deconstructed. Yeah. And and the Jesus who, as you say, has been disembodied and he's just a spirit who just happened to come into this flesh. And by the way, it didn't really count what he did day to day, 24 seven. All that counts <laughs> is that he died. And then we have this happy ever after story and goes to heaven. So yeah. so his his lifestyle has been minimized. So that's yeah. why the second question is, and who is your Jesus? Yeah. And if you and what I teach is that there is a continuum And on the continuum, well, let me back up. Mm -hmm. So Emperor Constantine, who actually had his wife boiled alive and killed his son, that was, he was a Christian yet, but he hadn't been baptized. He waited till death. (laughs) So that's why he was okay with murder and boiling people. Yeah, yeah. but a a Christian man, right? He called together the Council of Nicaea in Mm -hmm. uh, in 325 AD. Yeah. CE. And um, so he called them together and said, all right, all you bishops who are, you're all fighting mm-hmm. about all this, who, the, who Jesus is and all that stuff, just straighten it out because he wanted political peace. Mm-hmm. So they fought it out. And yeah. what they came up with, their grand answer is Jesus was fully human, fully divine. So what we have in this non-answer is that we have a continuum. So those people some people say Jesus was just solely son of God, accent on the divinity, divine, never sweat, never had a, an appendage that could be touched. <laughs> never, had a witch, never had a witch, never had a bone. So it's all divine. And then on the other end, you have the fully human, which mm-hmm. is the incarnation of God. Mm-hmm. So one is fully spirit, one is fully uh, human. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting, I don't have research for this, but in my own observation, I have yet to meet someone who is into Jesus as a disembodied spirit, fully divine, mm-hmm. who is also able to see uh, God or see Jesus in the flesh mm-hmm. uh, as a sexual creature, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. we are. So where you sit on that continuum will help you um Either it'll keep Jesus uh, s- someone you can't identify with because yeah. he's never had sex, never had a lustful thought, all right, yeah. uh, or or not. And so the challenge then is to get people to read, read their Bible, mm-hmm. the gospel stories, and say, all right, how much of this is stuff that the church fathers taught us uh, for centuries that keeps him disembodied so that yeah. you can't really appreciate the humanity of him? Yeah, yeah. So we gotta move that move people down the continuum so that they're they're understanding the full humanity of Jesus. Yeah. Okay, that is that is fascinating. I remember um I remember on a plane trip to China, um, grabbing Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, because it was 
you know, top of the charts at the moment. And the Da Vinci Code was this big conspiracy theory that basically led to the the conclusion that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and they had a child named Sarah because, of course. Um, And this was in the height of my evangelical days and I remember getting to Hong Kong airport and kind of very righteously tearing the book casting it in the bin because I wouldn't dare dare think that Jesus had at any stage lost his virginity because um, that would make him sinful because it, somehow the idea of sex was dirty and sinful to me. And yet, um, you know, and yet were Jewish men even able to speak in the synagogue as Jesus did if they were not betrothed or married? And there's all these, I see you shaking your head there, so you know more about this than I do. So there's some things about Jesus that we haven't been able to acknowledge as even a possibility. Um, So it's interesting even right now you presenting to me as a very theologically literate post-Christian believer um, that there is a continuum when it comes to who Jesus is. I have still been stuck in this place of I must believe in the 100% divinity, 100% humanity of Jesus. And there's been a degree of stuckness that I'm acknowledging now um, about sexuality being dirty or sinful. Yes, yes. And that did not come from Jesus. Yeah. Right. The dirty, sinful stuff came from church fathers Mm -hmm. who were incredibly misogynistic and very sex negative. Mm -hmm. Um, But but it it predates the church fathers. So let's give some credit here where it really (laughs) originates 300 years before the before Jesus was Plato and he taught Aristotle and they taught that passions of any kind were inferior, carnal. So in it, so Gosh. what was great was reason, reason in the brain. Okay. Yep. So so the bifurcation of mind and and the body and spirit had happened in the Greco-Roman world before Jesus ever came along. Right. That's really right? interesting because even in yeah. Aristotle, you're saying passions, and I'm thinking straight away the four passions that became the choleric, sanguine, melancholy, phlegmatic personality types that came that from which all of our personality typing and, and, and thinking kind of comes from. Um, but, yeah, they were the passions that they'd link it with, like the black bile or, the you know, all this different kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. It was really, uh, yeah, you're right. It was an, an energy against passion and towards logic, right. which is kind of, I mean, there's an energy in in a lot of places that tries to repress feminine emotion, call it hysteria, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, yeah. untrustworthiness. Yeah. And it's, you know. so, so what we find then about 300 years after Jesus, when all of this, who was Jesus and why mm-hmm. they live and die, was yeah. stirring in the in the air, that the early church fathers began talking about sexuality negatively. Mm-hmm that it was better to be a virgin mm-hmm. and it was better if you're going to be married, then don't have sex. And if you're going to have sex, then don't have fun. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you only have babies. So yeah. there are uh, amazing things clear up through Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century that the words that he used for married sex 
were uh, abominable. They were just horrible words. Um, huh. Yeah. None of which I can remember at the moment, but oh, of <laughs> trust me on that. <laughs> There's a book called Lust, which I highly recommend, and he talks about it. But yeah. um, so, so any kind of sexual feelings were was bad because it supposedly that moved you away from your spirit, um, mm. not with Plato, but with church fathers. And yes. so they didn't. And the fear of sexuality, if you if you really get into pleasure, then we would become irresponsible hedonists. Yeah. Well. Okay, that the, actually what's more likely to happen is the more you repress, 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 the crazier you'll go with your hedonism when you find you bust out of it. So there's that too. Yeah, that is very interesting to me because um, what I see as an, as an outside observer who hasn't done extensive research on this, um, I will, you know, admit that up front, is, is that the language that I'm used to in the church is around sexual shame, it's around in nature it's around um you know the body is evil we need to put to death the deeds of the flesh um and it's all connected and then we have this extremely sex negative conversation um and i mentioned this in the last um, podcast episode but it's, it's too darn funny i'll mention it again um uh, like groups like christian mothers against masturbation on facebook uh, it has to be it has to be satire because it was so like they, there was this picture that went up that, you know, before you put a diamond ring on your finger, make sure she's never self-raped her sin cave. Um, oh, and yeah. like, it's just putrid language, yes. <laughs> but yes. not only is it not okay to be a Christian and a sexual being as a woman, but we also shame men about it, but in a different way. So the conversation around porn use um, it's always porn addiction in church circles and I think the language has always been about shame and repression and I don't know I think women tend to turn that shame against their own bodies and um, there's this overlap between purity culture and diet culture and Mm -hmm. but also an overlap between purity culture and rape culture because we're thought of women are thought of as objects and um, you know at fault for male desire and there's a whole lot of ground to kind of reclaim here um but yeah take me back to genesis the genesis story a god that is okay with laughter and pleasure and eroticism that's something i haven't read in my bible well acknowledge my own tell me about that (laughs) what do you think adam and eve were doing in the garden well, I thought they, they were, were on Facebook all the time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they were not on Facebook. No, they were they were naked, yeah. and unashamed, mm-hmm. and they were romping in the garden, right? Um, which is oh. a sensual place, right? Yeah. A sensual place, a garden there, and um, and they walked with God in the evening. So yeah. to be so in harmony with the Creator. And living yeah. in that creation, so there's there's nothing negative mm-hmm. in that story at all, mm-hmm. right? It's all very positive. Um, and then, of course, you know, the church has done its deal, but say, well, they got kicked out of the garden because of sex. And all, what? You know, that made no sense whatsoever. So there's yeah, that. the snake was a euphemism, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I was also raised a conservative Christian right. um, before there was real like Christian fundamentalism. Um, but in my day, of course, we didn't talk about sex. And yeah. um, 
And so now I forgot my point. I'm oh, sorry. You, it was, but awesome. I just wanted to identify that I also come out of that conservative <laughs> background. Yeah. And, so, okay. Complementarianism, the idea that, that men and women are equal in value, quote unquote, but not equal in authority. I mean, that's kind of the tip of the iceberg here, but nestled within complementarianism is kind of this idea of the masculine as logical and superior and the feminine as sort of emotional and inferior. And um, this has kind of got a whole lot of sex negative, you know, outworkings in the church as well. Um, The idea of women not wanting or needing sex and therefore never, you know, not having the desire and men as needing sex every few days. Like there's this whole lot of problematic teaching mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. this. So, um, and it's interesting now we, we kind of have, we have Christian progressives, we have Christian fundamentalists, we've got complementarians kind of in the middle of that kind of um, continuum, if you like. So how do you, how do you kind of help people move from that conservative place to a more progressive, affirming, sex positive place? That's a whole thing. (laughs) Well, I would, I would say, first of all, that complementarians belong on the sex negative side, Mm -hmm. that that is simply a redressing of patriarchal norms. Yep. That's, that's all that is. They're trying to dress it up and make it sound like the women do have power, but in their own little realm, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's the same thing that they were te- teaching back in the 50s. That's the same thing they were teaching back in whenever, a long time ago. So, yeah. no, I'm highly critical of that. It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a job of, they're trying to pull the wool over our eyes. So put speak. lipstick on a pig, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, I think the, but what I do is I bring that back to science. Now, my, my Christianity allows me to be science friendly Mm -hmm. and science is a dialogue partner with my faith. So I'll Mm -hmm. read my Bible and then I will uh, also understand how science will support um, some of these ideas or not. And all of those ideas that you just listed um, are not validated by any scientific research. I mean, it's just not there that yeah. there's more variety within females than there is between male and female. I mean, that there is no dichotomy like that. Yeah. That's societally driven, mm-hmm. but it's not hormonally driven yeah. uh, or chemically driven. So, yeah. so you just kind of throw that aside and say, nah, you're trying to dress something yeah. up here, um, put the lipstick back and, yeah. you know, we, we're not going to go there on that one. Yeah. Um, so I, I look to science and science will tell us mm-hmm. that um, the more guilt you have, the more problematic that's going to be for your relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, science will tell us if you don't know your body mm-hmm. and can't say yes or no, then mm-hmm. you're setting yourself up for, you know, all kinds of bad things to happen. Yeah. Um, so science can tell us what um, uh, a healthy sexual development um, is and yeah. also Uh, how to have or who has good sexual relationships where there's a lot of satisfaction and contentment. And it's just about the exact opposite of what these folks are telling us. Yeah. Okay. And they're setting us up for bad relationships and for, for gay kids to get kicked out on the street Mm -hmm. and, you know, bad things to happen all the way around. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to say what they're looking at in scripture uh, they're imposing their ideas, their non-scientific ideas onto scripture yeah. um, without taking into account 
what we know to be true through science. Yeah. Now, okay, again, can of worms. <laughs> the science versus religion uh, narrative, I don't think has ever been as strong as it is now um, because we're not talking about kind of new earth creationism in every edition of the newspaper. We're talking about pro-vaxxers versus anti-vaxxers and, you know, the anti-vaxxers kind of get thrown in with kind of right-wing crazies. And I will admit that there's a bit of, um, you know, apocalyptic kind of anxiety that goes with this whole COVID-19 conversation. And the only reason I raise this is not to talk about vaccines or COVID-19, but to acknowledge that we've kind of set up this science versus Jesus debate that is kind of a false dichotomy. But here you are saying that science and your faith work together quite well. Um, has and I know that you're talking about the area of sexuality, but I love this kind of conversation of, okay, what's in the Bible and what's in the research papers? Because you're right, there is no research that backs the kind of brain differences that you know that we're taught about. Males and females have a functioning limbic system that drives our emotions. Males and females have a prefrontal cortex and they have the basal and temporal areas of the brain. We've all got this. We've all got all parts within. So you're absolutely right about that. What was your journey to coming to embrace both science and faith and ping them off each other that way? Mm -hmm. So... Um... I went to seminary to decide whether or not to be a Christian, uh, <laughs> to stay a Christian. <laughs> and you emerged and stayed. Uh, so and I did stay, yes, yes. But, but I also, I heard the good news about being a sexual woman, not from my church or my scripture for that matter. Yeah. I heard it from the women's movement. Right. And, um, and I was so angry when I, when I learned, you know, the sociological research on, on the number that has been done to women who buy into this submissive stuff in terms of yeah. the lower pay that they receive, what happens yeah. with the children, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, so, so I found science, scientific, sociological research particularly to be very helpful for, to me to deconstruct um, what I had learned from my church yeah. uh, or, or what the culture had given me that I had put into my religion. Because mm -hmm. my church was very silent about sex. And we yeah. didn't talk about this kind of thing. And yours wouldn't be uh, the, the, you know, exception to the rule. I think they right. all are, unless it's yeah, to kind yeah. of poo-hoo it. <laughs> which, which, if I may digress and say, which is so silly, because you, your central teaching is that God takes human form. That's the centrality of Christianity. Mm. So what, the, what is the problem with human form? What, you know, it just... It kind of blows me out of the water to think this is God in the flesh. Yes, incarnation. We are incarnated. We are the body of yeah. Christ. That puts us right there with Jesus as our brother, as the Apostle Paul says. Um, so why do they keep wanting to put Jesus, um, keep him elevated and keep us down? Yeah. Uh, so, so I am criticized or I have been challenged to say, oh, what you're trying to do is bring Jesus down to our level. Well, my first thing is, and what's wrong with that? Yeah. Right. My second thing is what I'm really trying to do is lift the humanity up. Yeah. You know? Because we, we're never going to get to sacred sex if we keep thinking 
repress, repress, right? Mm -hmm. And we're never going to get to the really good juicy stuff with our partners if we don't bring mind, body, and spirit to that encounter. Mm -hmm. All of those encounters, we have to bring all of ourselves. And so that means we have to get rid of these scripts in our heads that are uh, what Margot Anand calls the unholy trinity, fear, guilt, and shame. Hmm. Those are the three unholy trinity. The book is Art of Everyday Ecstasy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so we have to get rid of that stuff. Okay. And then, and then bring, lift up that which is sacred in ourselves and in our relationships. You know, how do we find God in one another? Uh, how do we find God in the enemy, into the neighbor, and in our bedroom with our beloved? You know, I mean, we can do that, but we have to. We have, we have to stop putting ourselves down. Yeah. Particularly our bodies. And I mean, the unholy trinity, man, that just, that rings true. That's going to rattle around in my head for days. Um, but yeah, particularly our bodies. I, I think that women have especially been sold short in this area of um, body positivity, which I think has to go hand in hand with sex positivity. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's like just you see these kind of cartoons about the difference between a woman looking in a mirror and a man looking in the mirror and you know you've got the woman looking in a mirror and she's gorgeous but the mirror is showing her lumps and bumps and and fat where there is none and then you've got yeah. a man looking in the mirror and he's you know heavily overweight and but he's got this adonis kind of looking back at him and I think that's just absolutely classic and but I'm not going to play down the fact that in, increasingly men and young men are feeling the pressure to look like Chris Hemsworth when um well quite frankly I don't think Chris Hemsworth even looks like Chris Hemsworth most of the time um but women really got sold short in this area um I am look I'm not a huge person I think I'm pretty average but I'm easily the the most overweight of my sisters I am average but I, I'm considerably heavier than all of my other sisters but I'd also probably be I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I'm probably the happiest in my body um, and I know that I'd have no way of comparing that but I'm happier now in my body than I ever was while I was inside church because my um, my ex-husband and I were raising these two kids and we're, you know, decided to raise them in a very body positive kind of way. We call a penis a penis. We call a vagina a vagina. Um, you know, my kids are told, you know, that fat is not good or bad it's not a statement of value um one of them asked me why my stomach is shaped the way it is and I was like because it was your house for nearly a year <laughs> and it was your sister's house Very for good. nearly a year and I refused to to teach them the language of shame because the language of shame around body is something that I learned from observing in church and in my own family, because I'm a pastor's kid, the way bodies were talked about or not talked about, constant diets, um, you know, stuff like that. And it's really hard to unlearn. Um, right. But you really have to have that body positivity and to understand it as good and to not understand fat as a value statement or things like that. But that's a work to do. Um, so, yeah. So let me suggest that you get the book, The Fat Jesus. 
oh my, my theologian <laughs> Lisa Isherwood is her name. Theologian it was published in England about 10 years or so ago. Yeah. And um, the fat Jesus, it, and she brings research together to show that that the women who have the most body uh, negativity and problems with body, it comes out of uh, evangelical churches, mm. not Catholic, not Catholic cathedrals, not Jewish women, it's mm. evangelicals. And I want to say from my own personal experience uh, with black women in this country that women of color do not have the same problems with body image the, that in this country, the Ugh. women of color, actually roundness is appreciated in a woman yeah. far more than in the white. So there's a racial piece to this. And I'm not sure Lisa Isherwood covers that, but I know that there is a racial piece difference. And there is definitely the difference in terms of evangelicals you know the very conservative folks are the ones who have the diet for jesus and you know yep. all of these exercise yep. programs which are for the women yeah to be good for jesus you have to be thin kind of a thing so and it's yeah. it's really funny because and i say funny and i have a nervous laugh not funny it's not funny that um it's it's not necessarily something that is preached from the pulpit all too often or in the majority of churches. I mean, there was a video that went viral a couple of months ago of a, and I'm just going to say it, overweight male preacher who was talking about how women need to be skinny and need to be attractive for their husbands. I saw and, that, yes. Um, and it was awful. It was like, how dare you? But that was an overt preaching of a message that is mostly internalized I will say um like yeah uh, but you know then again in in kind of the private conversations between women in pastoral counseling you never know what's what's talked about but you know um I'll, I'll, I'll never forget being at my it was a family birthday it was a couple of years after my disfellowshipping from my dad's church and I was eight months pregnant with my daughter and I was going around the table dishing myself up tacos I mean tacos at this event and my dad said to me in front of a whole lot of other people who were from the church that I had been disfellowshipped from how's the diet going there and I just looked up at him and went you know I'm this shape because I'm pregnant don't you Good for like you. even at eight months pregnant, how's the diet going? The assumption yeah. that I would be on a diet while I'm nurturing this growing human life inside me. I was yeah. just like, you can't just ask people that, but actually inside evangelicalism, you can't because if we, you're a male, you can particularly, there was a real power yeah. dynamic. He was pulling on you there. Yeah. That was the male trying to control the female. Yeah. So, uh, and yeah. It's a, a, a story that we see through history. So, so, mm -hmm. so what, what you've just said there, the male pulling on the female, can you have a body positive, sex positive church that isn't woman positive and feminism positive? Wonderful question. And you are absolutely right. You cannot, right. you cannot, you have to find the, there has, we have to recover the feminine within Western culture, period. But certainly yeah. within the Christian story, we have to recover the feminine. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just want to put in here also, a, there's a chorus 
uh, I cannot tell you who did it, but if you can look it up, yeah. it's just four lines. But the line is, how could anyone ever tell you you were anything less than beautiful? Mm. How could anyone ever tell you you were less than whole? Mm. Right? Isn't that beautiful? And is that not the gospel? Is that not what the church should be speaking to? That we are all made in God's image. Excuse me, Genesis. You know, that's yeah. what that story is. Yeah. Um, so let us live up to our potential in our beauty. And the beauty is never external. It's never about, you know, whether or not you have leprosy or whether or not you're female or, you know, going back to the Bible stories. It's always about the heart. It's always yep. about circumcision of the heart, according to the apostle, you know, yeah. according yeah. to prophets, his righteous living, always, not your rituals, not your external stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So a lot of this, I think, uh, anti-woman narrative um, if we if we can be so bold as to call it that, but then again, I think it's just calling a spade a spade. Come back, yes. can come back to the idea of that, that Eve was taken from Adam's rib that he that she was kind of created for him, and I'm using those air quotes there. What comment do you have about that back in mm -hmm. you know Genesis and about the value of women? Right. Well, uh, I'm using the work of a Hebrew scholar by the name of Phyllis Tribble. Mm -hmm. book is God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality. Okay. And she, as she's a Hebrew scholar, well-respected, and she went back to those words and found, discovered that the word that is translated in King James as help meet, you know, a helpmate, <laughs> Jesus needed, I mean, Adam just needed a helper, all right? Um, that word is applied to God, is a helper to us. And we would never, that's in the Psalms, we would never in a million years say God is just an assistant, right? No. But that is how they choose to interpret what that word actually means. It's not, it does not mean that at all. Second thing that Phyllis uh, discovered is that, that the, there is no gender. Adam, H-A-A-D-A-M, means earth creature, soil, come from the soil. And, and as far as we know, at before, when there was only one, Mm -hmm. um, the word tells us that it's an androgynous. It's not male or female. Now, isn't it strange that we call it Adam and a male? No, the scripture is very clear. Adam is a play on the word soil because the first earth creature came from the soil. Right. When, when the second creature is made, all right, yes. that's the first time you now have a male and female. Okay. Right. So, okay. so the original intent was to create humanity, period. We don't need any gender as a piece of that. Mm -hmm. And when the two appear, there is not a subordinate and a dominant relationship. Right. They are just Adam and Adama, I believe is the second word. Right. So there, there you go. And that, that's what we need, scholarship. Yes. To inform us that, oh, you know what? We've got a bunch of men over here who are into the dominant uh, yeah. culture who want to lord it over women. And guess what? They read into the scripture. It's mm. like um, the, the more diversity we have and the more education helps as well, the yeah. more likely yeah. we'll get a bigger picture of who God is. You know, when you yeah. bring lots of different people to the table and yeah. we can have these conversations. And women have not been allowed yeah. to be in those conversations that not educated is, not trained in seminary not ordained you know 
Yeah, that's a fascinating conversation to me because that that scripture that you just cited there, um, I mean, if we read it as one unit, we see we go straight from Adam to Adam and Eve (laughs) Um, and we've gone like we've got that kind of gender constructs as as developing together but scholarship actually slows that whole scripture down says they're two very different kind of clauses within um within that and 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 gets us to look at the actual words and gosh if we take the whole bible that way (laughs) it becomes an entirely different book doesn't it if we have to read it without our preconceived ideas yes it's interesting. I, I think there's a lot of good men in churches. Um, I know a lot of them. Um, or, and, but because of the nature of complementarianism, even these good men have to go looking for teaching that, that brings women up to their level. Um, in a way, because that that kind of patriarchy is inherited so easily for men, so they actually have to actively deconstruct uh, gender roles and and complementarianism in order to find the truth of this. Um, how can we help our men help us? Okay, so I'm going to tell you about a book I just read a year or so ago by Carol Gilligan, who is just a child developmental psychologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called. Uh, why does the patriarchy persist? And she studied primarily women, uh, young girls, mm-hmm. but um, but also children. Yeah. And she says that um, that patriarchy exists because it's handed down, as you say. Mm-hmm. But little boys know by the time they are five and six, they know to be a boy, they must deny their feelings. Mm-hmm. Then there's another crisis of in the teen years when. To be a boy, one has to embrace competitiveness, fight them out, you know, mm-hmm. competitions kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Girls begin at the, a little bit later in life by um, teen years, preteen. Girls learn self-identity. What it is to be a girl is deny your feelings, mm. take care of other people. Mm. Wow. Now, the good news, that's what keeps the patriarchy going, all right? Yeah. Men who stifle their emotions, stifle the femininity, and it's all about combat, competition. Yeah. And women who are denying their truth and not speaking what they really think. Yeah. The good news for Carol Gilligan is that we all know at some level we're playing a game. Yeah. Every little boy knows that when I fall and I get hurt, I want to cry. Yeah. But he's not allowed to. All right. Because the patriarchy says no. Mm-hmm. And every little girl knows that, you know, I think that guy's wrong because <laughs> I know the right answer to this, but we'll zip her mouth shut yeah. because that's not what it is to be a girl. Yeah. So one, so the solution to dismantling the patriarchy then is yeah. for us, yeah. for men to start being in touch with their own humanity yeah right instead of this false maleness mm-hmm. and for women to start speaking up their truth and this is particularly needed for white women because yeah. white women are more likely to believe the patriarchal lie right that if we just 
keep our mouths shut, the white men will take care of us. Whereas <laughs> our women of color sisters know that's a lie because they ain't never been taken care of by any old white patriarchy. Right? <laughs> yes. Right. So they call it. They right. call it. Yeah. All right. You're absolutely so right. that's so what we do is encourage men to get in touch with their feminine side. They will call it feminine. It's not, it's a human side. Yeah. And encourage women to speak up and speak out, name your truth yeah. and uh, speak your feelings and whatever's happening. So yeah. empowerment of women is a real key, a point in this. Yeah. Um, you, you are bang on about, um, about the, the, the women of color needing to speak out about their oppression a lot more. There's a comedian, Michelle Wolf, who does this fabulous bit about feminism and about being a white woman. And, and she jokes about how it was a very comfortable oppression. It's hard to feel oppressed in a four poster bed and, you know, like, and it's true. It is so true. Yes. Yeah. We get some perks. We get some perks because it's white men on top and white women next. Yeah. yeah. But here is the thing that is kind of inherent in the system and it's gaslighting. Um, and it's that kind of, look, no, you're not being impressed. You're just being hysterical. Take a nap, have a nap, go buy yourself something nice. You know, it's okay that you're, you know, like for some people, they want to be a stay-home mother. And I think as a feminist, I need to affirm that choice to be a stay-home mum. I also need to be able to affirm the fact that that is not right for me um, and that in order for me to be my most happy self and the best mother that I can be to my kids, a rewarding career and a rewarding social life is part of that. Now, I have a fabulous co-parenting relationship that enables that to happen with kind of relative ease. I say that during a lockdown, so it's kind of it's mostly bullshit at the moment, mostly, mostly <laughs> theoretical. Right, okay, gotcha. But, um, but, yeah, like we, we kind of can be gaslit into thinking that it's not okay for a woman to be anything other than completely self-sacrificial in her relationship, completely taking on the burden of the housework and the children's well-being and also keeping her husband sexually satisfied despite um, whether she's um, whether she's in the mood or not at the very least. Right. But I've also right. read articles on how postpartum women who were recovering from a gigantic trauma can keep their husbands sexually pleasured enough during those, you know, weeks immediately after birth, which is horrific. It's horrific, but it's touted as biblical counselling and it's rubbish. <laughs> so this yes. is part of the gaslighting. Um, and it takes a it takes a, an active kind of courage and clarity for that bubble to pop and go, no, this isn't right. What tips do you give or what resources do you give women and I'm, I'm looking here is it your latest book um that that you are talking about here that is about resources um to and to give right. to clergy and sexual health professionals what are some of the gemstones in there that we can kind of take Ooh, well the book is really for professionals who are dealing with with um, marriages that are on the rocks and yep. because of there's no sex happening because yep. of all this sex messaging, negative yep. messaging. Um, but I, let me, let me back up before I talk about the book, let me back yep. up to say the 
the question that women need to be asking themselves is who did God make me to be? Mm-hmm. Not who the husband thinks or the preacher thinks or politicians yep. think, but who do I think? Of? So what are my skills? What are my um, passions? Mm-hmm. Um, where is my bliss? And women have been told not to ask those questions. Yeah. So if we don't have those answers on the tip of our tongue that we really know who our authentic self is becoming, mm-hmm. then it's easy to be gaslit. Yeah. All right. So it really begins with, um, with our understanding of, of who the creator, who she is calling us to be. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So say that. Um, what I teach, I teach uh, clergy and I teach sexual health professionals in a training. I have yeah. level one, level two, and it's wonderful because sexual health professionals are, are stuck with um, all of this toxic religion in their counseling offices. <laughs> and well, they don't dismantle people's faith, but they really do have to dismantle something. Mm-hmm. And then you have these clergy who haven't got piddly squat understanding of sexuality and how to deal with that in their offices. Mm-hmm. So getting them in the same room together to talk or zoom room at this case to talk yeah. to one another um, is is part of that yeah. um so so one of the basic things that comes out of, of the book is about teaching people about the discernment framework mm-hmm. um which although the the evangelicals say no we just go by what the bible says well yeah i've just told you the story of of Adam and Eve a little bit differently in the Bible. So, um, or, you know, how, what you and I bring to scripture is going to be a little bit different than what someone else will bring. But the discernment framework has really been articulated. um, Somebody put it together that John Wesley, who founded the United Methodist church did, he used four sources of authority. So just because I say they use the Bible, no, it's, it's a Western interpretation you're giving and yeah. it's a dominant culture interpretation, yeah. which, but the discernment framework is to put in dialogue four sources. So there's the tradition of the church. What has the church said about this down through yeah. the ages? What does your local churches say? Oh, they disagree with one another. Which one are we going to listen to? So yeah. the, there are lots of different ways. And the church had no trouble with gay relationships back in the medieval uh, yeah. ages they they had blessings for gay men gay couples so what's the big deal now yeah. so the church has been all over the place on any number of things um both locally and geographically as well as yeah. historically so there's the the bible there's the local church and tradition is what i would um he would call it yeah then there is um reason um what we would say would be science mm-hmm. so the science is in discussion with local church or the churches and tradition, yeah. as well as, um, as the scripture. Yeah. And then the, the fourth thing, which is what John Wesley brought in, these three, the Episcopals and Anglicans, you know, understand those as sources of authority and they're in dialogue. Yeah. The fourth one that John Wesley brought in is personal discernment. So mm-hmm. what is the spirit saying to you? Yeah. So, uh, and, and what happens then? So the spiritual surge the journey is about listening to all four of those sources, yeah. understanding they're in dialogue with one another, and they all disagree. <laughs> yes. And that's okay. Yeah. Because what you're going to do is you're putting your own conscience, your own spirit driven self in that mix. Yeah. To say, okay, so here's an example. So the Bible seems to be against gay people. Now, you and I can have a conversation. It's really not. But okay, so that's my thing. And my church is against it. All right. 
but uh, but my personal understanding is no, I, I think I'm really never been attracted to the opposite gender. I think I'm gay. Yeah. So that would be an example of coming to the point of saying, I'm going to trust my own inner truth. Yeah. Um, somebody else could come to a position to say, you know what, uh, maybe I'm not gay, but uh, but the Bible seems to be against gay people. But but this church down the block is not. They got a gay pastor. So that's the church I'm going to go to. So what becomes the driving force of how do we know which is which is truth for us yeah. is prayerfully discerned. Yeah, we have to pray about this. We have to reflect on it. And always the criteria is the love ethic. What is the most loving thing for me? What is the most loving thing for you? Yeah. All right. And so is it the most loving thing for me to spend the next five, seven years diapering babies when I really want to finish my college degree and get on with this career I have in my okay, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's something that I have to discern Yeah. Um, with lots of help. Yeah. Then, um, so abortion would be another way of looking at, all right, what does the Bible say about that? And what does my church say? These churches down through the ages, you know, for ages, the church yeah. has always been very clear that there is no life until the mother can feel it yeah. moving. That the quickening is called. Uh, now we have to have science in there. What? What? Yeah. The, the egg and the sperm. So, so um, even that is a classic case, though, of church tradition evolving in the last fifty years. Um, yes. It, like because what is the well the we can say the Bible's clear on it. The Bible is clear on it. Numbers five instructs priests on how to force a miscarriage if um you know infidelity is suspected um so the bible is not so so i mean well in genesis is clear when life begins so life begins when god breathes into the first human so when yeah. there's a breath of life god is yeah. ruha breath of life then there is life yeah. um so the way i would read that when that infant can breathe on its own yeah. It is a life. Okay. Yeah. But you're right. And it, that all that abortion stuff was a deliberate strategy to come out as a direct result of the, of the sexual liberation movements of the sixties and seventies. It came yeah. out seventies and eighties. So let's be clear, call a spade a spade, as you say, yeah. <laughs> uh, and let's be clear about that. Yeah. Another topic of, of interest would be uh, consensual non-monogamy that yeah. the church is not looking at at all. No. So people outside the church is looking at it. But here we've well, got, you know, marriages between one man and one woman and only once. And okay, unless you divorce and you get back, well, let it, okay. Do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's a but the Bible is not, biblical marriage. Polygamy? So <laughs> polygamy is what the Bible is about. Absolutely. And sex slaves. Let's be real clear. Concubine is another word for sex slave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And child brides. And yep. I mean, yeah. our ethic has grown beyond that. Um, <laughs> so, you know. Okay, so so the, again, the ethic is what is the love ethic? What is the love ethic? Is is it to be forced to be a sex slave to marry someone you don't want? You know what? Yeah. What? There's not a loving thing about that. Yeah. And and you take the love ethic and say, okay, I really love these two people, yeah. and I want to live with both of these two people. Why can't the more more partners I have, the more love I have? What's wrong yeah. with that? Well, well, you know what's wrong with it? is it scary 
And when I think sometimes we misinterpret scary as wrong because our key driver as human beings is towards safety and that stems to psychological safety. And I think in many ways that is what's driven a lot of our rhetoric against certain things because we simply don't understand. Um, But faith by definition is to take a step not knowing if the ground is underneath you. Oh, goodness. That's what faith is, to move towards what you think God is calling you to be about, move towards the love. Yeah. Always asking what's loving for me, what's loving for the other people. And and it moves us out of taboo. It moves us towards liberation. And people are so afraid to be sexually liberated. Yes. Especially the more repressed we are. Yeah. So yeah, that's the reality. Liberation is scary. Yep. So was, G- was Jesus a liberator or not? That's the question. That is. And that brings us right back to who is your Jesus and yes. who is your God? Um, and increasingly, and I, I think honestly, the whole energy behind Unchurchable is because I realized that church may not be always easy or possible for me, but faith and spirituality was something that I held very dear. Now, when you were talking through the discernment framework, I found it really interesting because really the first three, you were talking about personal agency, really. I have the ability to look and to discern and to choose. And then when the Wesleyan methodology brought in personal discernment, that should have stemmed to all of us, but perhaps because of our cultural norms, perhaps because of our own fear, we've allowed ourselves to land in this neo-charismatic space where personal discernment sort of lands on the shoulders of these mega church pastors or of our local pastors and we attribute way too much discernment to them. We put them on a pedestal and we think that our judgment is inferior and yet if the breath of God is what animates us, then that discernment on the inside of us needs to be given space and we need to be able to choose based on those other three elements of the discernment framework, which I just mm-hmm. loved. Yes. We also need to be able to abide by the law of love and say what is the most loving. So I loved that. I loved bringing that conversation about agency back into spirituality. I think that's really important. Um, and I and I insert here two hmm. things. First of all, my sex therapists and counselors love that idea. The personal agency is exactly what they want their cou- their couples, their individuals <laughs> yes. to experience. Yes, yes, yes. Take responsibility and stop listening to other people. Yeah. Uh, I just want to do a little friendly connect uh, amendment hmm. to you were talking about the grand poobah in the churches yeah. uh, in their yeah. discernment. No, I don't think they're discerning at all. Oh. That is no, no, no. Those are pleasure police. <laughs> and it's all yep. about rules. It's all yeah. about legalism. It's all about keeping things the way they want them to be dominant, it, dominance yeah. in certain ways and so forth and controlling certain feelings. Yeah. And then we're back to Plato again. Yeah. So, um, so rule keeping is what conformity is about. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And if we just, the lie is, if we just conform about this gender issue and this sexuality issue, then then we somehow were, I don't know what we are, we're saved, I suppose is the yeah. word. But Jesus was a rule breaker. Ah. 
when it prevented relationships you break rules yeah yeah when it prevented healing mm. you go rules right and when it found. when it reinforced and when it reinforced a dominance he broke the rules mm. so he wasn't an anarchist he went to the temple right mm. But he did break rules when it prevented some key things from happening. Yes. And when it, when it prevented the fulfillment of physical needs. Mm. Yeah. They were yeah. hungry. He said, go out in the field and get your corn. Yeah. Or whatever it was. It's a crop. Yeah. And they did. And you're hungry. You eat. You don't have to go through all the ritual washing your hands. You know? Yeah. So take care of the, so those, those are the three criteria. That's going to be in the next book that I'm writing right now <laughs> that he used. So to give people permission to be a rule breaker, yeah. because there's no liberation if we're busy walking in lockstep to yeah. rules that somebody said, who was a misogynist and uh, believe this is, yeah. Yeah. Because you know even, even within that, I mean, there was at some point, and you can probably tell me when this was because you're a better biblical scholar than me by four, um, but at some point a bunch of dudes got together to decide what was going to be in the Bible, um, and that happened hundreds of years after Jesus walked the earth. So what else are we missing about his dialogue on our needs, which include our sexual needs, which are right. actually God-created and God-breathed, like you know um so that's a whole thing so really when we're talking about sex and faith when we're talking about um a faith that is liberated like jesus would have us liberated we need to be woman positive we need to be body positive we need to be sex positive and being sex positive doesn't mean being without sexual ethic that is something that each of us needs to take on board it's also being literate enough to understand consent um and this is a conversation that i am learning as a woman who is on the right side of 35 because there's no wrong side of 35 <laughs> but it's a conversation you. that i'm teaching my daughter at age three she doesn't like kisses so we ask her permission can I give you a kiss? Right. If she says no, that's fine. And I remember once just, oh, she was so irresistibly cute, just, you know, falling asleep. So I kissed her on the cheek and she rolled over and she looked at me with flames in her little eyes and said, I did not consent. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. I was, wonderful. I, love I was it. so struck and yet I was so proud. <laughs> but yeah, so it's this conversation about uniting all of those things, about understanding that they're not evil and that our bodies aren't evil. But it's also a conversation about really fully leaning into our agency and our discernment and away from the pleasure police and the thought police because we have thought police in our own churches it's not just yes, in Hong Kong and communist China that we have those it's it's here in our own kind of pews that's big that's big work and it takes time it doesn't is. it it does it does because it takes time to get rid of get out from under the unholy trinity mm -hmm. but the positive good the good news here is that it's all there in scripture in terms of Removing when we lose those lenses that we're using and just yeah. kind of go to Jesus as the man. Yeah. And then look at who he was talking to and how he healed. 
Um, And then just think through the whole, I mean, the early church and acts, you know, they were breaking all kinds of rules as when it came to Gentiles and women and so forth. Women had all kinds of positions of leadership. So um, when we listen to the spirit, however, we want to define that. Yeah. uh, We will hear a message that moves us out of conformity and out of the prisons that that's many in the church want to keep us in and moves us toward who God made us to be. Yeah. That's the good news. And it will always be towards the loving thing, whatever that is. And you've kind of, you've used this term of the good news in conjunction with sex, um, which I think is jarring because as a survivor of purity culture, there, there was not a whole lot of good news about that. And I, I know I should have asked you this question maybe 45 minutes ago and this whole podcast would have gone along a different track, but I've found your scholarship so very interesting and so very helpful. But there was this whole thing about, well, there is this whole thing, in, especially inside evangelicalism. I don't think, I think some churches would, would find it outside their ethic to ask somebody whether they were sexually active outside of marriage before they decide whether or not they deserved a place on the podium or on a service team or on a, you know, we're given a microphone at all and I can see you rolling your eyes, which I love. So you know the question I'm going to ask. Um, <laughs> and it's Go ahead. About does, is there a biblical, ethical um culturally relevant reason why somebody who is sexually active outside of marriage should be precluded from ministry excluded from ministry you're serious about that you really want to i do because my answer is because it's bullshit but people listen to this podcast at so many different (laughs) at so many different stages of their deconstruction that it's a sticking point for people is you know well i've I've been taught that this is so you know that i'm it's biblical to be married before you know okay all right so so we do know there's a gospel of mary uh going to mary that was part of the nag hammadi uh, scrolls found in 1945 um and we know there's a gospel philip and the gospel philip said that it was mary who kissed jesus and was the beloved disciple um Oh yeah, oh yeah, and that Mary of Magdalene was um, uh, in a in a rivalry with Peter, actually, and was oh. correct, not Peter. So, so we know that in those uh, non-canonical uh, yeah. gospels, women, particularly Mary, was in a position of leadership. We know that in the Book of Acts, that um, and another in Romans, that Paul is talking about Junia and and yes. Priscilla. And uh, yeah. John, I mean, there's all kinds of them that he's mentioning are, are in their head of house churches, which means they are in charge. All right. Yeah. So biblically, we have uh, and non-canonically, we have those examples of women who are doing who are in positions of leadership. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would agree with you that this whole idea of keeping women out of church leadership is bullshit. And yeah. you just heard that from Reverend Dr. Beverly Dale, and I will stand <laughs> on any kind of a pulpit and say that. That's going right? to be quotable. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, yeah. But the reality is, go back to the discernment. If God was calling me to the ministry at age 11, so yeah. I knew, oh, surely God didn't make a mistake, but I knew there's yeah. nobody in my church family at all who would ever agree to that. I'd never seen a church, woman yeah. church uh, minister in my life. Yeah. 
So I did the next best thing. I married a minister, right? And I got to do everything except, you know, the elements in the, in the pulpit, yeah. but I did everything else. Yeah. Um, but then, but then I began to ask questions about who is God really calling me to mm. be about? The women's movement said, be the sexual woman that you are. And if yeah. I want to do that, then I have to remember God said to be a minister too. And so then I went to seminary um, to decide, is this real? And discovered that the people who were saying women do not belong in the pulpit are for the most part, men (laughs) who want to keep men on top, making all the decisions and women in their little complementarian role over here with the children and so forth. So there's a political agenda there to keep the domination paradigm in place that has nothing to do with Jesus. There's nothing in his actions that would indicate he was a part of that at all. Yeah. Yeah. To the contrary. Love it. So yes, you, oh, I'm in. Okay. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in. And I have kept you far past the hour. So I just want to ask, one final question, and I suppose this sits on the periphery of, of all that we've talked about today. Deconstruction as, as an act is defiant, it's courageous. Um, deconstruction as a movement is um, interesting because there can be a temptation to apply the same dogma that we were used to inside the institutions that policed our bodies and policed our thoughts and and then kind of as we deconstruct or as little baby deconstructors come out afterwards we want to force them to be atheists or we want to force them to um, you know to do deconstruction our way you deconstructed by running to seminary and years later you are an incredibly well written like you've you've got books out you you educate people you're doing incredible work on sex and faith um you've clearly held on to your faith throughout your deconstruction and your deconstruction seems to me to be ongoing in that you're still researching you're still looking to the science you're still looking to history you're still doing the work what would you tell to people, what would you say to people who are kind of beginning their deconstruction journey and, and feeling overwhelmed by it in terms of, yeah. Uh, well, if they're overwhelmed, they're looking at the wrong thing. They're looking at all, all they have to surmount. The way to do this is you have to look at where you're going, right? Yeah. You're moving towards liberation. And, yeah. and how do I know if it's the path of liberation, this narrow path of righteousness, right? Yeah. It will always be marked by joy follow the follow the joy follow the pleasure follow the life-giving pieces to this and and what happens is as we begin to think of our god as a god of pleasure a pleasure seeking pleasure sharing god according Mm -hmm. to uh, matthew fox um, um that that god becomes less of a certainly a male dominant uh, and, yeah. and more of a, a love force, uh, a mystery, an awesome thing that's that yeah. is enticing us to move towards life. Yeah. Um, and the Jesus is the model, you know, abundant life, move towards abundant life. And yeah. what happened was all of these people who were sick and, and marginalized and poor and peasants, so they began following him because there was a good news about this. And yeah. it's towards towards liberation of the spirit, towards joy. Yeah. 
And I think if we keep, if we keep looking at that, we're okay. Yeah. We're... We can do it. We can do it. And you're not alone. You're certainly not alone. By far. There's, those voices have always been there in the church. They're just not in yeah. the dominant. Uh, yeah. They don't have the largest megaphones, in other words. Yeah. There's a Wonderful. Here. Thank you so, so much for your time today um, and for all of the, the resources that you've kind of name dropped over the course of this episode. I'll be listening to it a couple of times. I can tell you that. Um, where can people find you on the interwebs? Okay, well, um, the website is incarnationinstitute.org. Yeah. Right? So, and we also have on there um, five, I believe, uh, resource sheets that people can uh, look at or purchase if they wish, um, such as how to find a gay friendly church oh, or wonderful. seven sexual prohibitions that are not in the Bible. You know, those kinds of intriguing. I'm so questions. downloading these today. <laughs> um, and for people who really want to get into this, I have a webinar series called Reading the Bible with Sex Positive Eyes. And it's like nine hours worth of, 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 of what we've just covered, much of it. And so, yeah, um, yeah if the resources are out there yeah. and I'm still working on it, working on the next piece, my book, Advancing Sexual Health for the Christian Client, is really for pastors and uh, sexual health professionals but i think others might find it useful as well amazing I'll work on another one yes and look i know a writer when i see one you'll be working on books to the day you die that's true that's true <laughs> so so we hope to see, we hope to see a lot lot more thank you uh rev reverend beverly dale the reverend dr beverly dale amazing content today and i'm so very thankful um for you popping by this is unchurchable i'm kit kennedy look after yourself and we'll see you next time <laughs>